Hi, I'm Christina Chota. I'm the Managing Editor of International Affairs. And I'm Isabel Matreja. I'm the Marketing Manager of International Affairs, the Journal of Chatham House. And this year we're celebrating our centenary. So welcome to the third episode of our podcast mini-series. In this episode, we look at our archive collection on 100 years of China in international politics. The archive collection was guest edited by Professor Evelyn Goh who's gone through 100 years worth of articles from the archive and has selected her 21 favourite articles, which best represent how engagement with China has developed over the last century and Chinese responses to this. The articles cover several themes, including China and international security, international economics, China's entrance into the international system and its role within the region. In these podcast episodes, we get to speak to guest editors like Evelyn about the process of putting the collections together and what they can tell us about the themes at hand. We also speak to a couple of contributors to find out more about their articles and what they tell us about international politics today. In this episode, we start by speaking to the collections editor, Evelyn Goh. Later, I talk to Professor Rosemary Foote from the University of Oxford, whose article is featured in the collection. The article was also part of our 2019 special issue celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Versailles Peace Treaty. Rosemary and I speak about how China's historical engagement with the West still influences both its domestic and international politics. And then at the end of the episode, I speak to Professor Zhang Feng Yang from Yonsei University in South Korea about the US-China relationship. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, I'm here with Professor Evelyn Goh from the Australian National University, who is the guest editor of our archive collection on 100 Years of China in International Affairs. So, Evelyn, can you tell us a bit more about how China entered world politics? Uh, yeah, sure, Christina. Uh, thank you for having me on. And it was a real pleasure to guest edit this collection. Um, look, you know, China has always been in world politics. There, there wasn't a single point of entry. Indeed, in Chinese eyes, China has, for all of its history, been the world as such. So um, if we think about the past 100 years, we can probably think about five phases of Chinese interactions with world politics, I'd put it that way. Sort of from 1922 onwards, for, for the first two decades or so, you know, this, there was China in interaction with the world in, in a hopeful sort of turmoil, right? As post-revolution, China began to contemplate entering and interacting with Western international society in a post-imperial way. And then in the second phase, you know, um, between about the, the 1930s and the 1950s, of course, China in dark turmoil and during the, the Sino-Japanese War and then the Chinese Civil War um, and then the first decades of Chinese communist reign on the mainland, a really somewhat withdrawn, certainly very troubling um, period in Chinese history when it was not clear that China engaged with the world in in a systematic way at all. So we might think of that period between the 30s and the 50s as a bit of a withdrawal from the world. So from about 1965 onwards, we really have that modern, most recent period of China engaging directly and integrating with the world, if, if we put it that way. And in my introductory essay, I talk about how 1964 was a turning point 
in China's entry into the contemporary uh, international order, if you like. And that comes um, obviously with China first you know, being recognized in the international community as a significant great power with its achievement of nuclear weapons capability with its first nuclear test in 1964, and then more significantly with its being voted into the China seat at the United Nations in 1971, shortly followed in 1972 by recognition of the People's Republic of China, Communist China, by the United States, which marked China's entry into the US-led world order. So from that point onwards, really, it was a trajectory towards the next most significant step, indeed the most significant step of all, post-1978, China's entry into the international global economy. And that really was the groundwork for China's current engagement and, and position in the international order. Of course, from the 2000s, we've become accustomed to thinking about you know, China as being that ultimate rising or risen great power in the international order. But you see how the preceding decades, particularly from 1964 onwards, really laid a groundwork for that. So some of the articles in this collection kind of date back to the 1920s. So why should someone interested in understanding modern China actually read the articles? Uh, That's a question which, you know, historians would obviously bristle at because one obviously needs to know, you know, the trajectory of change um, from which we've come and and that that would explain large swathes of what we see in the contemporary world. Look, I think there are two reasons why someone who's exclusively interested in China today would want to look at this collection. First, of course, is that China today is in the advanced stages of dealing with a couple of very significant challenges that it's been dealing with since 1911. And I think if you read my introductory essay and look at the first theme on Chinese history, society, and nation, that short sort of three or four pages really illustrates what I've just said. You know, that challenge of how China was going to build a nation and make a state that was in response to Western modernity, imperialism, industrialization. Basically, China's modernization project is one sort of process that we might see, you know, as having officially begun in 1911 and still continues today. So someone who wants to simply pick up on something very contemporary like oh, the Belt and Road Initiative and what does Chinese investment in its peripheries mean would need to understand the Chinese modernization project as vital background and motivation for this. And the four articles in the Chinese History Society and Nation section of this collection variously illustrate some of these um, continuing strands, right, Um, of nation-building and state-making in this hundred years for China. And and just cursorily looking through those four articles would give you a really good sense, for example, of why current China places, continues to place such enormous emphasis on reunification with Taiwan, why that is so crucial to the Chinese state-making, nation-building enterprise, how that is deeply intertwined 
with Chinese ideas of the modern China, the new China, the post-imperial China. So that's just one example. Uh, so the second reason why someone who's interested exclusively in contemporary China, uh, contemporary China would want to read this collection is because the collection tells you just as much about the international order in which contemporary China finds itself as it tells you about China's path to the present. And of course, again, any good historian, any good political scientist would tell us that understanding that context of that evolving international order um, is vital, right, for making sense of China today. So one thing you were talking about there, kind of China's regional relations, and that's one of the groups within the collection focuses on that. So I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit more about how China's relations within the region have developed. That was a really difficult section to choose and to write for. Because as I observe in the essay, China has a lot of neighborhood, right? So I had to make some quite difficult choices. And in the end, I decided to focus on East Asia, which arguably is China's most volatile neighborhood. So I I had to compromise. Um, Of course, there are other parts of China's neighborhood, Central Asia, South Asia, the Sino-Russian interaction, all of which are terribly interesting and really very significant and important. But in any case, I focused on East Asia, mainly because I really wanted to pull out two vital themes that I think we need to sort of get our heads around if we think about China's approach to its immediate international peripheries, right? And these two sort of imperatives are, first of all, of course, that long-standing, ongoing problem of national unification for China, right? And in the East Asian realm, of course, this includes the vitally important questions of Hong Kong, Taiwan, right? And more recently, various territorial, maritime territorial disputes in in the South and East China Seas, but primarily Hong Kong and Taiwan. And the other theme or imperative I really wanted to pull out in this section was this, again, growing arc and scope of China's ability and desire to mold and to shape its immediate periphery. What in Chinese is called su zhao zhou bian, right? Literally to, to mold and shape surrounding areas. And, and so I think this comes through in that collection of five articles in, in the China's neighborhood section. There is a an indicative piece by Michael Yehuda on, on Hong Kong. In 1993, of course, as we approach the vital handover in 1997, there is analysis of the interactions between economic interdependence and potential political integration between China and Taiwan, published in 1993, also by George Crane, something that which surprisingly does stand the test of time in terms of the theme of whether economics can spill over into politics. And then a couple of fascinating articles on the Southeast Asian side of the region, one on the South China Sea and one on the Mekong mainland region of Southeast Asia. Look, what what these two articles do, I think, is to turn the lens, to look at how China interacts with others in its peripheries, right? Um, Just like we're trying to understand the Chinese perspectives in this collection, Um, We're also getting our heads 
around the fact that in order to understand China in the world, first we've got to understand the kind of order that China is interacting with, and that comes out in Catherine Morton's piece on the South China Sea, when she makes the important point that to understand what China is trying to do in the South China Sea, you've got to understand that the international maritime order is itself significantly evolving. And much of Chinese actions over the past 20 years in that space, you know, ties in with that ongoing renegotiation and shaping of maritime order, international maritime rules, governance structures, things to be governed, you know, and so on and so forth. The main Kong piece by uh, Yao Song, Guan Yu, Tiao Franco, and uh, Ta Yang Yu, Tian Yang Yu, um, really turn the lens and sort of make the important point that in order to understand China's influence on its periphery, we need to know quite a lot about the domestic politics, state-led but also bottom-up, right, uh, community-up uh, politics um, in what I would call the target countries of China's influence. So again, that relational point um, is brought up very strongly in, 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 in that section. I think that that, that selection of five pieces in the neighborhood section um, is the most varied section of the collection and well worth a look for those who are interested, particularly in China's um, growing uh, regional positioning and influence uh, over the past 30 years or so. So for me, there's clearly a, a theme developing between the strong interconnectedness of Chinese politics or changes in Chinese politics and changes in international order. So you've uh, immersed yourself in a century worth of articles about Chinese politics. Did that tell you anything or give you any indications of what China's role in the world might look like in the next, let's say, five or ten years? It's always hard to gaze into the crystal ball, isn't it? Uh, even if it's in that short time frame of five to ten years. Um, I think we would be safe in expecting that this, what I've called that those growing concentric circles, ever larger concentric circles of China's role in this now extremely globalized and in some ways very integrated world, will increase, right? Um, it's hard to see a situation in which China's significance, both in the global political economy as well as in the global order, will decrease, whether for good reasons or bad reasons, right? China has become a significant and pivotal player in a large number of realms. So I think we can expect in international affairs, certainly, the coverage of China, critical discussion of China will continue um, to grow both in number, but also in scope and domain. I think that's safe to say for the next decade, at least. So final question, obviously, you are an absolute China expert, but is there anything that's actually surprised you or anything you've learned from putting this collection together? I was surprised by, pleasantly surprised by the, the variation in themes and authors who have contributed to the discussions in international affairs which are centered on China. Um, it's, it's quite remarkable that there has been this amount of coverage on key political developments within China 
and also at strategic junctures in the wider world. There's been very good coverage on ideology, economic security, history and culture, right, and all across the board here. And let me say a word about that changing profile of authors, you know, who've written about China and who've helped to interpret China for international affairs audiences. You know, there, there's a bit of a tendency to think that international affairs is, you know, it, it's quite a sort of British and, and European or certainly very Western sort of outlet. What's notable in this collection is that the first two pieces that I've chosen, articles number one, actually articles number one, two, and three, are by Chinese authors writing respectively in 1926, 1935, and 1972, right? Wu Shi and Jiang Tingfu, the first two authors, are very well known in their own rights and in, in, in their own circles. They were obviously, uh, you know, Republican Chinese scholars and leaders as well, who had access to the Chatham House circuit. So, so we begin the collection very strongly with, with three Chinese authors. And then you see it opening out in the subsequent decades to a wider variety of professional scholars who, from the outside, begin to study China as a specialization from different parts of the world. And then in the close, in the more recent decades, 2000s onwards, we see again the rise of you know, larger numbers of Chinese scholars either based in China or parts of the Chinese diaspora or you know, ch- scholars of Chinese origin who are at institutions outside of China internationally writing in a fairly big way on China in international affairs. So I think the journal can be quite reasonably proud that it has actually maintained and grown that diversity of voices in the discussions on China in the pages of this journal. Um, so that, that for me was a very sort of nice thing to find, I think. Oh, amazing. Thank you so much, Evelyn. I felt like that was a fantastic whistle-stop tour of, of Chinese <laughs> history and the way China has been looked at in the journal. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. And yeah, if if you guys want to read any of the things that Evelyn's been talking about, the archive collection is currently free to access and there'll be a link in the notes below. Thank you so much for joining us, Evelyn. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Christina. Thank you, Izzy. Hi, I'm here with Professor Rosemary Frutt from Oxford University, whose article on Remembering the Past to Secure the Present, Versailles Legacies in a Resurgent China, is part of our archive collection on 100 years of IA's engagement with China. Her article appeared in the January 2019 issue of International Affairs. So this was a special issue marking the centenary of the Versailles Peace Treaty. So, Rosemary, why was 1919 an important date for China in particular? Oh, thanks very much for that question, Christina, and for inviting me uh, to talk about that article. Um, I want to go first of all back to August 1917, actually, when China entered World War I on the Allied side. And I think China decided to do that first as the main means of addressing the injustices that it was still experiencing as it started to struggle through its Republican era 
and to build itself as an independent state in world politics. And then secondly, it was attempting to raise China's international status through membership of a particular and powerful section of international society, uh, the Allied powers. With victory over Germany secured, China looked to the Versailles Settlement and to President Woodrow Wilson in particular and his 14 points to try to find a way of securing their rightful place in a new world order, much discussion about a new world order after World War One, And again, to underpin Chinese claims to restoration of its status as an independent state. Then there's the particular matter of China regaining control over the Shandong Peninsula. Germany had acquired Shandong at the end of the 19th century, and in 1914, these possessions were awarded to Japan. You can imagine the anger in China. China's delegation expected these colonial possessions back at war's end. 14 points encouraged that thinking. But that wasn't to be when this information about the fate of uh, German possessions reached China, there was absolute uproar. And this is when the famous nationalist May 4th movement took off in China. The leaders of that moment denounced the um, Chinese delegation as national traitors and saw the West and Japan as predators of old. There was no sign of a new world order then. So the Versailles Settlement of 1919 is significant in a number of ways. China was in ferment uh, with the collapse of the uh, Qing Empire. It was exploring a whole range of ideas about ways of living and governing, not just Marxism, but fascism, liberalism, feminism, anarchism. And some of these movements were more internationalist than nationalist. But what you see really in 1919 is a growing of nationalist sentiment and a search for some degree of restitution and international recognition. So when this didn't happen, the scale of disappointment was immense and therefore, you know, a sense of grievance built up. So this this victim narrative, if you like, Versailles is in the centre of that, but the century of humiliation really dates in China's telling from 18. 39 and the so-called opium wars. So 1839 to 1949 is that century of humiliation and is the phrase used in China to describe the period of intervention, subjugation of the Qing dynasty, and then later of the Republic of China by Western powers and Japan via unequal treaties, tariff demands, but also a real sense in 1919 that China's objectives had been thwarted and 14 points, Woodrow Wilson's 14 points, were essentially meaningless as far as it was concerned. So it's really clear that 1919 marked a low point in China's interactions with international order. But it also seems like this century of humiliation has clearly ended. So China is now one of the major powers and is one of the most influential countries in, within the international order. So why is this victim narrative still relevant? That was one of the central questions for me as I was writing this particular essay. Why hasn't it diminished to a larger degree than has become the case? If I could give you a flavour with a couple of quotations of, of China back in 1924, and the first president of the Chinese Republic, Sun Yat-sen, speaks of China in the following terms. He says, 
Today, we are the poorest and weakest nation in the world and occupy the lowest position in international affairs. Other men are the carving knife and serving dish. We are the fish and the meat. I mean, very, very uh, striking phrases that Sun Yat-sen used. And if you compare this with a number of Xi Jinping statements, let me give you one from the 19th Party Congress, 2017. So Xi Jinping, President Xi Jinping puts it like this. The Chinese nation has achieved a tremendous transformation. It has stood up, grown rich, is becoming strong. It has come to embrace the brilliant prospects of rejuvenation. It offers a new option for other countries and nations who want to speed up their development. And it offers Chinese wisdom and a Chinese approach to solving the problems facing mankind. So very, very different um, perception of China's role in the world, as you've indicated by your question. Um, yet it's also Xi Jinping that hauls the newly established Standing Committee of the Politburo to the exhibition at Beijing's National History Museum. That exhibition is called The Road um, to Rejuvenation. And the exhibition is set up to remind them all of the country's past national humiliation. And indeed, Xi Jinping goes on later on to project China as the most humiliated among the large number of, of nations that actually suffer forms of humiliation in the colonial era. So it's a very odd juxtaposition. With Xi in power, we seem to see a much more confident China, more confident about its global role and what it can offer the world. But these statements are always coupled with a reference to China's period of hurt and shame. And why is that? I, I would suggest it's because it, again, it operates as a unifying narrative about the past that can be deployed in the present and in the future. So statements about that the West is out to contain China, it's out to weaken China, it's out to encircle China, and that the country and its citizens should forever be on their guard. Um, and also, if you see yourself as the most humiliated of the former colonial powers, then in some ways this reinforces a sense of entitlement to some form of restitution. So restitution of territory, status, support for your core interests. We hear so much about that in contemporary Chinese discourse. I think what is different in the Xi era is the increased role now given to the Chinese Communist Party in having lifted China up from that period of hurt and shame. And it's the CCP that stands ever ready to protect China from enemies that seek to cast it back into this kind of weakened, humiliated states. So in many ways, 1919 and the Versailles Treaty have become firmly tied to the establishment of the Chinese Communist Party, which, of course, occurs in 1921. And it's that Communist Party that has allowed China to embark on a road to recovery, to be on the cusp of rejuvenation. It's many ways, it's an exclusionary form of history that really denies the role of significant others. And it imposes a, a form of linearity that's unhelpful, I think, to understanding the complexities of that long road to restitution and, and recovery. So it's useful to the leadership. It helps them bolster the place of the CCP, and it helps 
unify a country against what the the, the current Chinese leadership would see as a hostile, unhelpful uh, Western presence. So you published your article in early 2019. Of course, quite a lot has happened since then in international relations. Has that changed how this use of history by the Chinese government, has it had an impact? This is a, an interesting question. And obviously, uh, there are those that argue that the victim narrative has diminished in centrality. But I actually don't think there have been such fundamental changes. I think aggrieved nationalism remains very useful in an era when sanctions have been imposed on China, uh, in part, obviously, because of developments in Xinjiang and abuses, human rights abuses there. It remains useful when Chinese investment is no longer being viewed so positively, much greater suspicion of what that investment might mean for domestic political economies. And so the Chinese leadership will turn to the behavior of the US and its Western allies, together with Japan, for examples of where they are still trying to keep it down. So in that way, the victim narrative lives on. So resurgence is expressed in the idea of China playing a leading role in global governance. And you think about this in terms of China's recent launch of the Global Development Initiative or the Global Security Initiative. Uh, China is more prominent in international organizations like the UN or the G20. But nevertheless, uh, there is, again, accompanying that greater role is this uh, narrative about the extent to which uh, Western powers in particular will prevent China from actually taking up its rightful place in the international system and, and helping to recreate global order for the 21st century. How is this going to impact China's role in the in that global order? I mean, I think it would like to continue with the same policies in many ways, to put forward initiatives, to play a more prominent role, to reshape global order towards a set of norms that it find, would find more comfortable to live with. But there are a lot of unknowns. There are a lot of big unknowns, not least uh, the extent to which China's economy can withstand the strains that it's, that it's facing at present, in part forced upon it by the zero COVID strategy, but also by the general slowdown in the world's economy. After all, China is the world's leading trading nation. It's very integrated internationally, but there is a slowdown in that world economy. Uh, it cannot sustain the growth rates that we have become uh, accustomed to when we think about China. There are also rumors about the political health of Xi Jinping. Is he in trouble? Do those rumors have any basis? Again, the jury is out on that. And above all, for me, I think about whether China's foreign policy initiatives in many ways have overextended its capacities in various ways. It's taken on a lot of new roles. I mean, we think about things like the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the, the BRICS uh, New Development Bank, the Belt and Road Initiative. I mentioned the Global Security Initiative, the Global Development Initiative. All of that puts China out there in a very complex global order. And whereas in the past, the international environment 
was very favorable to China's development objectives. And it really did focus, particularly in the Deng Xiaoping era, on its development objectives. That has changed markedly. The Chinese themselves state that the world is going through momentous changes, major global changes unseen in a century. And there is no doubt there is resistance to a number of the international policies that it has been attempting to promote. I mean, we see that obviously among Western states. We see the way the US and Europe has come together on a number of uh, policies and projections about China's future. We see new developments in the Asia-Pacific with ideas like AUKUS and the idea of the Indo-Pacific economic framework. So yes, part of that resistance comes from the Western world, but it's also the case that other states, particularly China's neighbors, are concerned about uh, a resurgent China and whether it will use its power in benign ways or in order to satisfy its own core objectives. To some degree, I think China recognizes all this and is concerned by these major global changes unseen in in a century, as it describes it. But I think it also views this opportunistically. This is a moment for it to step up But in my view, again, it has to be better at adjusting to the environment in which it finds itself. It needs to make more of an effort to look at the world uh, through others' eyes. And whereas, again, the victim narrative encourages it to think of itself as the underdog in some respects, its neighbours and other countries in the global system certainly do not see it as an underdog. They are actually concerned about ways in which it might wield its power. And that's very important as far as I'm concerned, that it needs to think more about what it means to be a great power and what it means to be able to be successful as a great power, which requires some adjustment to the environment in which a state finds itself, some attempt at least to look at the world through others' eyes. Well, what quite a question to finish on. What does it mean to be a great power? Hmm. Rosemary, I think you've given our listeners quite a lot to think about. Thank you. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to talk about the article once again. Hi, everyone. This is Isabel, and I'm here with Zhang Fengyang, who's a professor at Yonsei University. He wrote an article for us in 2020 called The Great Chinese Surprise, The Rupture with United States is Real and is Happening. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Isabel. So lovely to have you here. So as I said, we're talking about your 2020 article today, which is looking all at US-China relations specifically when President Trump was in office. So to start off with, can you let us know, you know, what did U.S.-China relations look like before Trump came into office? Well, the U.S.-China relationship was always um, contentious. And at the end of the Obama administration, issues were building up, tensions were building up on particularly the South China Sea and, of course, um, alleged Chinese cyber attacks against the United States. And of course, you always have the um, you know disputes on the economic front and Taiwan, 
So yeah, uh, and of course, the Chinese side wants to wanted to establish the so-called new type of great power relationship, whatever that may, that meant. Um, the U.S. was not buying it, and uh, yeah, so. The 2016 election was perceived, deemed a turning point, so to speak, for uh, for for the relationship. So, yeah, as you say in your article, you talk about how the Chinese government seemed to think that this would be a bit different. They would have a good relationship with Trump, but that isn't actually what happened. So, what did happen during Trump's term? Sure. First of all, <laughs> the Chinese government did not like Hillary Clinton at all because she was、um, spearheading a、uh, U.S.、Uh, assertion into. Into the South China Sea dispute, and they were very happy with Trump because, you know, first of all, she's、uh, he's not Hillary Clinton, and he's a businessman and very transactional. So the Chinese、uh, didn't have much、uh, political experience. So the Chinese side thought,、uh, you know, we could handle him, and in spite of his tough anti-China rhetoric, well, the Chinese side mostly took it as just、uh, you know for the sh- for show only. But of course, things started to. Take dramatic turns. There were quite a number of twists and turns. Well, you know, as soon as he was elected, you know, and of course, just days after the election, he took a call from from Tsai Ing-wen, the quote unquote president of、uh, Republic of China on Taiwan, and that call that was kind of unprecedented. And then, of course, Trump continued to talk tough on China. Boom! Then North Korea happened, and you might recall that 2017 was the year of a fire and fury, where whereby you know North Korea continued its nuclear test and ICBMs, and there were so much tension going on. And、um, you know, this is a time when you know, you know, with North Korea acting up, and this is when Donald Trump was persuaded that China's role was instrumental, critical, indispensable. And this is when you know this is a, a moment of mutual convenience, so to speak. And obviously, the Chinese the Chinese side wanted to stabilize the relationship. That's why you in 2017 you have the April Mar-a-Lago summit between Xi Jinping and Trump. And then, of course,、uh, in November that year, Trump went to Beijing for a visit. For and then the Chinese side call it a summit plus to make it sound more grandiose. To appeal to to Trump's ego, so to speak, that's 2017, and then 2018 turned out to be even more dramatic. And first of all, in March, in March, you have Trump announcing that he's going to meet with Kim Jong Un, and then that brought you know it was such a you know unexpected announcement that prompted the Chinese side to to act because Kim Jong Un, ever since he took over from his father. Had never visited China, and of course, that's when you know after Trump Trump's announcement that he's going to meet Kim Jong Un. Kim Jong Un went to Beijing immediately afterwards, and so there were. And then Trump canceled the meeting before putting it back on, and then eventually they met, of course, in Singapore. But then after they met in Singapore, Trump right away started the trade war against China, which is still ongoing. Uh, actually, that's like a you know finally things turned around. You know that's like a shocking thing, and、uh, that's when the real Trump was revealed to the Chinese side that he's not that nice, not that rational as we expected. Actually, even before that, there was the Taiwan Travel Act that was pushed by by the、um, anti-China elements in the U.S. Congress, and then you have the U.S. National Security Strategy under under Trump. Which labeled China a revisionist power for the first time. So yeah, basically starting from to late 2017, and then 
2018, the relationship went into a nosedive, so to speak. So why did the Chinese government think that they would have a good relationship with Trump? I know we've touched on this a little bit, but in your article, you, you sort of share three main reasons. So, so what are they? Uh, well, first of all, I think, uh, well, overall, the Chinese side was, um, you know, uh, was uh, beholden to some outdated ideas about the relationship and, of course, a sense of complacency. So the three reasons starting, let's start with um, the, um, the fact that, that uh, the Chinese side basically mischaracterized, misunderstood Trump, the individual. The idea, I mean, the, the Chinese idea was that Trump was rational. He's a business person. We can reason with him. So he's not going to start the trade war because, you know, the trade war would damage the U.S. economy. And of course, particularly if the, if the Chinese side retaliate, of course, the Chinese side would retaliate against the soft belly of the Midwestern states such as Iowa, where a lot of Trump voters are who are farmers. And that's exactly what, what happened, right? So that's one. And two, I think ideationally, intellectually, um, the Chinese side, we're talking about scholars and officials, uh, subscribed to some, you know, sort of groupthink, so to speak, that was, um, that was very popular, that caught up with the popular imagination, talking about the U.S.-China relationship as a, like, a, like a pendulum swim. It's not, it's going to go, you know, if it's too far, then it's going to back to the center. And then, of course, talking about the relationship between the United States and China as a sort of a bickering couple, a couple who quarrels constantly but would never actually divorce. And then, of course, this uh, dramatized interdependence idea that trade, you know, trade and the overall economic relationship was too important to the United States as well. Uh, so trade would act like a ballast, like on a ship that's going to uh, act as a stabilizer of the overall relationship, which turned out to be untrue because, you know, in spite of the economic interests, Trump started the trade war. And third, I think, you know, you know, first of all, uh, there were some conceptual analytical flaws as well as the political considerations that really prevented the Chinese side from fully, truthfully comprehending the, the broad shifts of mood about China in the United States, because it's it's about this time when the United States in the U.S. Republicans and Democrats were coming to this idea that the old paradigm of engaging China was not successful. It has to be repudiated. But the Chinese said, okay, you know, same old, same old. And, you know, yes, they're gonna, Trump was talking tough, but he's going to go back to where George W. Bush was and, Hillary, you know, Bill Clinton was, uh, you know, going back to the, the engagement track and this and that. And of course, um, you know, on the other hand, and you know, blunt truth telling was never a strong suit in China, given the political atmosphere. So yeah, all things come together. It's just come, you know, come down to this misunderstanding, and of course, miscomprehension, and of course, misplaced expectation of the relationship under Trump. Fascinating. So looking at the relationship between the U.S. and China today, obviously tensions are still very high. So I'm just wondering. What were the long-term implications of that miscalculation? Like, are we seeing the direct effects in the U.S.-China relationship today? Oh yeah, uh, of course. Uh, immediately after the Trump trade war, and of course the you know the revisionist sort of power characterization, so the Chinese side was just a, you know it's just a shock, and uh, 
as a result of the sort of misunderstanding. So I would say they were kind of unprepared or underprepared, at least, for the difficulties and challenges ahead, and particularly on the trade front, because the trade war was something that was not expected. And of course, on the technological front as well, because the trade war was a, a main feature of this new relationship Trump started. And of course, the best example is Huawei. You might recall that in 2019-20, you know, news headlines across the world was so much about Huawei, Huawei this, Huawei that. And today, we don't hear much about Huawei. I'm not sure you're aware of that. That's precisely because the U.S. side has been rather successful in blocking Huawei uh, uh, blocking Huawei from access to state-of-the-art uh, chips, particularly from the Taiwan-based chipmaker TSMC. So Huawei has been rather weakened, and that's uh, and the U.S. you know was pretty successful in that effort. Um, so yeah, there you have it. You have all these unforeseen so-called black swan incidents, and of course we didn't expect the COVID-19 pandemic, all of which greatly and gravely complicated China's foreign relations particularly with the United States and its allies. So go back to your last, uh, the second question, tensions in the U.S. relations, uh, U.S.-China relations as a direct consequences of Trump's presidency. I would say yes and no. Now, on the one hand, issues such as Taiwan trade and human rights of the China Sea are perennial, you know, disputes and sources of tension between the two sides. And of course, you know, on the other hand, nobody expected the trade, few people expected the trade war to actually happen. So on the other hand, trade war is still, you know, it's Trump's doing uh, so much so that uh, the Biden administration is still caught up in the dilemma, right? Whether to, you know, right now because of the rising inflation, so whether to ease some of the tariffs on Chinese goods to help, um, you know, solve the problem of inflation. So yeah, so to that question, it's yes and no. You know, the relationship is so complicated and complex. If you were writing this article again today under the Biden administration, would you write it differently? Do you think, did China get it right this time? Have they understood Biden? Well, that's that's a very interesting question because, uh, first of all, we cannot unwind the clock. But in terms of a sequel to the article, you know, the international affairs article, um, yeah, we do need to go back to 2020, the 2020 presidential election um, between Trump and Biden. Um, I would say, you know, the Chinese side was cautious, was rather pessimistic. So this time, I would say my observation was that few people actually picked their favorite because by the year 2020, people realized that Trump wasn't nice to China at all. And Biden, having been around for so long, Biden is a, is a establishment figure and just like Hillary Clinton. So, you know, yeah, for the U.S., for Americans, it's a, the election was a lesser of evil. But then for the Chinese side, it's like, oh, it's evil versus evil. So, yeah, I would say, uh, yeah, it's a rather, you know, the general mood after the shock of the Trump years, early Trump years, the general mood in China was that it's just pessimism. And of course, about the, the overall relationship. But as the relationship stands now, you know, we all know it's all around competition. It's competition you know, ge- geopolitically, it's competition um, in economic and, uh, you know, economic and uh, diplomatic and uh, technological realms as well. So, yeah, I would say there's no point debating whether we've entered a year of the new, a, a new Cold War because we're already there. So, and of course, um, in the storm is Taiwan, uh, especially in the context of the, the U- Ukraine war. So, 
Yeah, I would, you know, going back to the initial question, yes, the question, uh, the, the article would be dramatically different because uh, time has moved on. But nevertheless, going back to China's perception of the United States or mutual perception, rather, uh, there's a tendency for both sides to exaggerate the threats posed by the other party. And that, of course, mutual distrust is so high that uh, actually there's a tendency to believe the quite, the, quite the opposite of, of what the other side has been saying. One relevant example I would raise uh, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, although you know China was not directly involved. But again, you know, in spite of the U.S. warnings that the war was imminent, the Chinese scientists insisted that the U.S. was just crying wolf and you know exaggerating. And then few people in China expected that uh, the war would actually happen. Of course, a lot of people in other countries and you know didn't expect it to happen. But you know, it's just the Chinese scientists discounted or, or dis- dismiss whatever the U.S. has been saying. Uh, so much so that the Chinese foreign ministry did not even withdraw its embassy staff and uh, and personnel in, in in Ukraine until after the war broke out. You know, it's just like that. So uh, that just tells you how how high, uh, how 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 exacerbated the relationship the relationship has become. Mutual mutual misperception is rife, and of course, it's it's just uh, everywhere. What do you think the implication of that is going to be on if the next few years, the future of the U.S.-China relationship, if there's such a sort of level of mistrust? I would say it's, you know, um, it's it's going to be tough. And um, and the U.S. side is aware of that. That's why, you know, to the Chinese side, it's kind of funny to hear words like uh, establishing some, some guardrails. That's what the U.S. has been saying to China. Of, since the Biden administration came into power, they say the U.S. wanted to establish some guardrail so that the relationship would not be derailed into into disasters such as wars and for the chinese side it's kind of a it's a new vocabulary and of course you know but the dilemma has always been you know what are we going to do about taiwan and of course in the context of the war in ukraine so the the scenario of a, a conflict conflict in the taiwan strait is getting getting re, uh, more and more real so yeah i don't know yeah it's just um, very complicated. Absolutely. So something to watch over the next few years or something to keep watching, I should say. Well, yeah, thank you it's... so much for, for being here. This has been absolutely fascinating. And yeah, really great to hear your insights. Oh, thank you. It's it's great fun to, to talk about these things. Okay, well, you can read his article in the archive collection now and it is free to access. So make sure you go and do that after this episode. Thanks so much. Well, this was a bumper episode. I've learned a lot this week. I think it was really interesting to talk to Evelyn first and get a visual stop tour of 100 years of Chinese foreign policy. She clearly has an encyclopedic knowledge of the subject. I was incredibly impressed. So then we got a historical overview from Rosemary, which was brought up to date by Zhang Feng. Yeah, it was so interesting to me to hear about the fact that, like, from our perspective... Trump and Biden represent very, very different presidents. But actually, from China's perspective, it doesn't make that much difference. It was fascinating. So um, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Join us again in August when we talk about refugees. And if you are interested in any of the articles we've discussed today, they're all free to access online until the end of June. Find the link in the show notes. Thank you. See you soon.